0: Welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, we have another interview with Frank Ruda, lecturer at Dundee University. And this time we discuss class consciousness and the history of Marxism, having a look at and discussing the Paris Commune, the Russian Revolution, and the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Just briefly touching all of those points so let's get started into it so today then i think our main sort of line of argument was having a look at how do we think in a proletarian way and then once we're done with that question getting stuck into a little bit of the history of marxism and exactly have a wee look at some countries and so forth and discuss that
1: yes um i agree and i think the two topics are somewhat intertwined right i mean because Um, the history of Marxism, one could say, is a history that tries in ever new ways, and and this is not simply meant as a defense, but tries in ever new ways to discover or invent what it means to think from the position of the proletariat, not always in an adequate way, and often also strategically or let's say it uses this very rhetoric without properly thinking the proletarian way, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. we, will, we will when we get to this, why I'm saying that already now, um, when we get to the history of Marxism, encounter um, a strange type of contradiction that the history of Marxism is filled with, namely that Marxism on one level, at least, um, if we believe the communist manifesto, tries to establish a non-statist free association of um, individuals that organize themselves in a non-state based way yet at the same time um, um, the 20th century saw something like nominally communist or at least Marxist or socialist states which are embodiments of contradictions if you if you if you take yeah. uh, the communist manifesto seriously right so maybe we can start um, by 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 um, saying something and maybe m- maybe, about the standpoint of the proletariat, that's a formulation that uh, Georg Lukács identified as the position from which Marx, but already, but also Lenin, kind of approached politics, right? And we, and and if we want to start, let's say, very tentatively and very, um, and and in a step by step approach, we could say thinking from the um, position, um, from the standpoint, from um, the place of the proletariat, means to think not according to what uh, Marx and Engels in the manifesto call the dominant ideas, because the dominant ideas are the ideas of the dominant class, right? Yeah. So if we have a class-based society, and if that is an argument that we find convincing, we have ideas that we find everywhere, um, uh, and that are circulating and that seem to be the only ideas available um, and just to 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 emphasize the critical edge of this idea uh, of this of this claim right if we're all totally convinced that liberal parliamentary democracy is the only organizational model right now, right at least in the west, this is a dominant idea and this is clearly the idea of the dominant classes because you find that. I don't know, endorsed and advocated by people in Hollywood and by, I don't know, German politicians and by French politicians on some level, right? I mean, with different agendas, obviously, but yeah, these are nuances, but nevertheless, this is what we're talking about like when we're talking about dominant ideas. And so Marx and Engels, at least in in, in a very tentative first rendering account is, that we need to think according to a different set of ideas, right? Or we need different ideas. We need a different idea, and communism is the name for that idea, right? So, on some levels, thinking from the standpoint of the proletariat means to think according to non dominant ideas or ideas of non domination, to switch that around. And the idea of non domination or the idea of emancipation is what we discussed already the last time. In I think in, in 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 terms of communism, maybe I can add one one more um, specification, and then then we can see how we how we how we develop that. Mm. The I think the the interesting thing that we already talked about the last time is that the proletariat that Marx and Engels in the Commun- uh, communist manifesto basically say for ninety percent of the population private property is already sublated, right, because they don't have any. And this manifests in the most extreme way in what they call the proletariat, right. So on some level, and this is, this is, this is the, 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 the um, strange position or dialectically intri- intricate position that the proletariat is in, they exist because of the bourgeois way of organizing the world, the bourgeois way of producing, the liberal way of, of, of coordinating, whatever it means to 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 possess something. On the other hand side, they are not a member, they are not an element, they are not included in liberal in the liberal uh, bourgeois society. They're they're what one could call with the with a term coined by. Um, by a number of people, but but emphasized in, in the last, let's say, fifty years by some by the Italian thinker Giorgio Agamben, um, the internally excluded or those who are only included by being excluded, right? Mm. So they are they are part the, the part of society which is not a part of society. That is that is a term by Jacques Concierge. So they 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 are, and this is this is the strange position they they are cons- a constitutive feature of the bourgeois world, but they're not a part of the bourgeois world, which means for them, the benefits and everything of the bourgeois world, and I want to emphasize on some level, the bourgeois world does not exist, right? So that is the strange, strange so for their, let's say living really, and experienced reality, the bourgeois world that is praised and that, 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 that shapes the dominant ideas does not exist. What does it mean to think from the standpoint um, of the proletariat? Well, to think not according to the dominant ideas and to think what it could mean, what on some level for the proletariat is already a reality, namely that the world of these dominant ideas does not exist anymore. Right? Mm. So, what does it mean to think from the standpoint of the proletariat? Well, on some level, it means to conceive of and think of a fundamental transformation of society in such a way that later mao at one point will say who's the proletariat it's just the friends of the
0: revolution yeah i think it's it's a it's a really critical problem within marx itself because we could say doesn't class consciousness come into it a little bit as well and just thinking along the lines of everybody lives in the bourgeois world and from the last time that we say that's the predominant way in which everything's presented to us through advertising through uh, various different things even a good idea that is reality tv and any reality tv show that with what you want is ultimately You could say it's the proletariat, or at least somebody from a working class background or something like that, ultimately says commodify me, please, please make me a part where I can be sold. And therefore, from that, you can enter into the bourgeois world proper, let's say. So, yeah, what's so in that way, we've got those two sort of ideas where does class consciousness come in if it does? Um, and then surely it's so ingrained, it's almost impossible, which then I, I'm just going to ramble on just a little bit for a second, mm-hmm. because there's also that lovely George Orwell uh, article on literature that I sent as well. There's a great quote from it in which he roughly just says, just paraphrasing it a bit, um, I don't believe the proletariat can create an independent literature while they are not the dominant class. I believe that their literature is and must be bourgeois literature with a slightly different slant. After all, so much that is supposed to be new is simply the old Stanton on its head. And I thought that was such a fantastic quote because mm-hmm. it precisely touches upon those points. The dominant class is the bourgeois one, and therefore... Then, as George Orwell says, well, surely then the proletariat have to think in a bourgeois way in order for the proletariat to sort of emerge as a different slant to it. I find that really fascinating. So really I'm just sort of as it's coming on to many different points of <laughs> course one to do with class consciousness one to do with commodification of yourself into the bourgeois world and then another one about thinking in a bourgeois way doesn't that in itself turn the old into something new and to be in to be a proletariat so sort of three different avenues
1: yeah no th- i mean thanks for that that was quite rich um, um let, let's start with the class consciousness um, okay. claim. So, on, um, on, on, on on some level, um, a certain interpretation of this term and a certain interpretation that one can clearly find in very prominent um, uh, thinkers um, of the Marxist tradition believes the following that only from that the moment um, the working class generates A knowledge about their own place in the general productive process and the general reproductive processes of um, their uh, contemporary society, they realize that everything hinges on them doing what they do. And the moment they realize that, they will have this very knowledge, will uh, provide them with the means to overcome the exploitative um, uh, structures and um, um, everyday reality they live by or they they are dominated by. Now the problem, the problem with this is, um, or was historically, historically the problem with this is, and we touched upon this um, um, briefly when we talked about, um, talked about, um, I think, Sloterdijk at one point, that um, um, so I, I'm saying Peter Sloterdijk because Peter Sloterdijk um, complained that Marx did not foresee the proletariat or the working class actually gaining some um, advantages, right, in their social um, uh, reality, just like living standards. They have toilets and right, I mean stuff that they didn't have, right, um, 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 two hundred years earlier, one hundred fifty years earlier. Um, but but I think. Um, and, and this is where a, a, a certain aspect that we that we didn't overemphasize yet comes comes in that there is not simply a reality and there are um, 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 ideas of the people who of those who have an interest in reproducing um, that very uh, reality. And then there are those kind of, I don't know, they, they they are the motor or the fuel of that very reality and they are at the same time excluded as if in the matrix movie right i mean like yeah. they're, they're, their lifeblood is sucked out or whatever vampiresque or whatever kind of kind of um, um metaphor we we like and they're they're all tricky because there there's a certain let's say um very problematic link from there um to uh, some anti-semitic discourses of, obviously right um so, so the standards, and and this is a so a standard model of of of, of um, class consciousness or interpretation and um, understanding of um, class consciousness is, is this um, the moment the essential class that is the working class or the proletariat, and that's why we haven't distinguished between the two, gains knowledge of their own position. For the reproduction and production of society, they change something because they see they're the essential and most important elements of that of that very society, right? But now the interesting bit that we didn't talk about is that there is not only bourgeois society and the ideas the bourgeoisie has about that society, and then a totally different set of ideas, um, 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 ep- epitomized on some level uh, and paradigmatically articulated in the idea of communism. But there is also what Marx and Engels, uh, from a certain moment on, call ideology, right? And ideology is a very tricky thing because ideology on the one hand, I mean, and this is how it was, how it was often, often um, interpreted in the early stages of Marxist history. Um, um, it was interpreted as false consciousness, right? So an inadequate knowledge, so to speak, of 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 social reality and its fundamental pillars now the tricky bit is this is not necessarily and only true right it's it's not only we have false consciousness and then we generate class consciousness and class consciousness is appropriate consciousness and knowledge of my role in society and when i have that knowledge this knowledge compels me to basically say well, screw you! You do all the work now, or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because that could be could be one interpretation of that. Why is that not the case? Because ideology comes with comes um, can come with um, a certain dialectical twist. What I'm trying to say is that that a certain functioning of ideology, at least certain theorists of ideology, um, 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 have um, argued that allows me to bracket what I know to be true. So very different from the entire from 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 a philosophical tradition, which basically. Um, 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 assumed that the moment I know what is good and what is bad, I cannot but act on the basis of that very knowledge. Right? Mm-hmm. If I if I really know it's 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 bad to torture, this philosophical tradition um, uh, tells me I, I I can't torture. If I really know that the present society organization of society is unjust, I ca- I can't endorse it. Right? But now. It is here where ideology comes in. And ideology allows for me to suspend the knowledge that I have, so I know something to be the case. But I don't act upon the basis of it. right? So I don't take that knowledge as, um, it, it doesn't incentivize me to do what I am supposed to do according to a rationalist, um, a traditional rational form of philosophy. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned that before, but there is this this famous, famous um, rendering of ideology um, or of a a term in in, in Freud, but I think it it helps to explain this structure of ideology by a a French psychoanalyst called Octave Manoni, and he basically claims um, the formula for that is, I know very well, but nevertheless. I know very well there are injustices in the world, but nevertheless I act as if I'm I'm not at all a, a, affected by them. Right. And if it's not that bad. I very well know that HM, I don't know, endorses child labor on some level. But well, they're I like their shirts, nevertheless. Or something like that. Right. I mean, so that means you, 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 you don't. Eliminate the knowledge, you don't falsify the knowledge that you have, but you bracket it and you um, and the bracketing suspends the practical effect, the becoming practically effective of that knowledge. Now why I am uh, telling you all that is because apart from class consciousness, this um, 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 points uh, to the fact that there might also be something that one should talk about something like class unconscious. Right so Maybe there are certain desires, and de- and this is linked to the desire to be commodified, or the desire uh, for commodification on some level, I think. Um, and it's, I think, a bit more complex than, than the than the Sloterdijk claim that Marx was too stupid to not to see that that there are certain social or individual um, advantages gained by bourgeois through bourgeois bourgeois development for the working class, because on, on some level, let me put it like that. Um, if, we, if we want to talk about, for example, from this perspective about uh, contemporary society, you have people who are clearly mildly exploited, you have people who are clearly harshly exploited, and then you have people who are not even exploited and who desire to even be harshly exploited, right? And that is a, so, 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 so Marx at one point calls that the, the, the industrial reserve army. And that is, I think, a crucial economic uh, component that has to do with how we understand the proletariat. So the proletariat has a position in the productive process, even though it doesn't work sometimes, right? Because it's uh, so because elements or members of the of of the industrial reserve army belong to the proletariat. Why is that the case? Because they allow for certain productive conditions to be Maintained and reproduced because you can always say you don't want to do the job. Well, we have a million over there in Africa who would immediately do the job, right? I mean, so and this is an economic economic factor of huge significance and importance. So we so there is, and I think this is a crucial 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 factor. Um, there is a kind of segmentation or economization even of 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 the of the, uh, of the uh, domain. Of exclusion itself, right? So they're not all excluded in the same way. Um, um, and just if I, if you give me thirty seconds more, I can I think quite quite easily elucidate that um, there that we that we experienced the refugee crisis in in the European Union, right? And the refugee crisis brought with it an interesting interesting kind of um, discussion, namely um, the discussion if the refugees coming to europe are actually can actually be considered um even though they clearly don't have a job and are fleeing their own home countries to be integrated with a desire for exploitation right with a desire for commodification as one could say um so they're fleeing their own country with that desire are they part of an international proletariat or aren't they mm. on some level um, 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 some argued um, they are not because they don't have a clear position in the productive process, right, uh, in the production process yet. Um, but but given the backgrounds um, of the, uh, of the concept of the industrial reserve army, I think when, when one has to reevaluate that. On another level, and I think that is absolutely, absolutely crucial. Um, there was a, a tendency to identify them with the proper excluded, right? With those who are really at the total margins of society because, I mean, they risk their life traveling, traveling, uh, um, um, uh, uh, or crossing the Mediterranean Sea and all that. Yet at the same time, um, and th- this, is, this is the absurdity of a certain situation, they were in a position. Um, they in, in in even that position they were the advantage because they have the money to buy the risky ticket to traverse um, to cross the Mediterranean Sea, where others are, were so broke in the infrastructurally devastated countries they fled that they could not even become refugees. I mean, and, and I think this is the structure of a, a, a increasing economization even of the realm of excluded, of the excluded. And I think this is mm. absolutely crucial because, um, and if you want to read something about that, there is a, a magnificent book with a slightly different approach by Mike Davis, um, American um, activist, uh, who wrote a book called Planet of the Slums. And Planet of the mm-hmm. Slums is basically an indication how how even the the, 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 the uh, uh, realms of the most excluded are constantly, let's say, reappropriated and uh, re-economized in some way with, I don't know, minimal credits, something that I think someone even got a Nobel Prize for, right? like they get, I don't know, a euro for 10 years or whatever, and mm-hmm. then they can start their own business somewhere. But th- these are just... Um, ways of, of um, segmenting, I'd say, um, and stratifying even the realm of exclusion more and more, um, whereby one gets different, I think, different, whereby the entire, um, um, let's say, relationship between, on the one hand side, the desire to be commodified, and the desire, and the, what, what it means to be, to have an awareness of one's own position in the world, right? um becomes more more and more complex and it becomes more and more complex because if you're living in a slum last sentence i promise if you're living in a slum and you're aware you're living in the slum and totally excluded that kind of knowledge does not necessarily empower you in any in any way whatsoever right um yeah. it is just like you have that knowledge and it leads practically to nothing no, nowhere yeah right? totally so yeah i should
0: it's <laughs> okay. No, that's fantastic. So really, I think a question from that that pops into mind is then maybe a clarification point would be good. Um, for me, that is to say, uh, can we then define a little bit the term of as proletaria or ultimately those people who are within the excluded of the society and therefore they have knowledge of their own exclusion and therefore you can know exactly what we just said there that you're let's say homeless and you have all these different various things that help you out but ultimately you still are in a horrible crap situation. Yes I mean so so
1: And the question is i mean let me let me say i think two let me give a two-step answer the first is because sometimes if you're experiencing um a problem you that doesn't necessarily give you a systematic insight right identifying oneself um as being in a situation of exclusion does not necessarily lead to emancipation for a number of reasons i mean the first reason um, um I, I uh, emphasize because sometimes knowledge simply doesn't help because it doesn't lead to to any let's say um, any any type of uh, practice linked to it right I mean it doesn't translate into pr- uh, practice and why it doesn't translate into practice has certainly a number of different different um, uh, reasons and one of that was described by the American cultural theorist uh, Frederick Jameson and he, he claimed that um, uh, identifying in the 20th century a disappearance of the category of totality. And uh, the category of totality was, I mean, it was theoretically criticized by, by a number of very popular theories in the 20th century, but it also became, I don't know, um, uh, problematic um, 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 uh, from the moment where one th- where, where the, the, the kind of discourse general, also political and cultural discourse, shifted into a direction where it was not just like one system unifying everything, but it was so diverse, right? I mean, so so capitalism in, let's say, Colombia looked very different from capitalism in China and looked very different from capitalism in Germany and very different from capitalism in Iceland or, or in Namibia. Right. So and if we have these diversities, um, then there is a certain temptation that they are just all particular instances with nothing um, um, in common. Right. And that is that is what led to a critique or a criticism of category of totality. Now, Frederick Jameson emphasized that the disappearance of that very concept of totality um, lets to a kind of what one could describe um, as a practical theoretical disorientation, he basically described it in terms of cognitive mapping. He basically said, well, we were were lacking the basic Basic profound coordinates of orienting uh, ourselves in in this world, because we don't believe, or we are made believe, or we don't see anymore, because the world seems to be so complex and so forth and so diverse that there is a unifying structure, nevertheless. And that unifying structure, that was the basic assumption of Marxism, is described um, um, through the perspective of the critique of political economy. That is later Marx, but also. Um, um, from the standpoint of the proletariat, right? That is to say, the moment we think w- there is no global structure, um, it is very difficult. It can become increasingly indif- uh, difficult uh, and almost impossible um, to imagine what to do with the knowledge that you have, namely that you're excluded, that you're nevertheless essential for the reproduction of the system, that the system is unjust and so forth. This does not immediately translate into practice because the imagination, let's say the powers of the imagination or the powers of translation of that insight into practice are kind of suspended or eliminated or limited. And the slogan for that is that when people can more easily imagine a planet. Um, um or a, a comet hitting earth and destroying the world than um um um, um, um a fundamental transformation in capitalism right or of capitalism into um into something else yeah i think that is clearly something something that that um 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 like a, a a limitation of the social imagination like of the social powers of imagination yeah now i think this is a problem that is also already described by the great predecessor of Marx, right, about whom we talked a number of times already, namely Hegel. Hegel has a theory not only in his philosophy of right of poverty, he basically a civil society, that is bourgeois society, uh, liberal bourgeois society, at one point necessarily puts people out of work and this leads to poverty, but he also has a clear insight that civil society can do all kinds of things Trying to elevate this problem, alleviate this problem, and 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 solve it, but it doesn't have the proper means. So I mean, Hegel goes through a number of uh, different different options: retaxation, colonization. Or um, or even advising the poor to beg publicly, but nothing changes their the situation, the profound structural, uh, mm-hmm. systematic or systemic situation that there is poverty. Now Hegel also has a let's say a kind of theory of class consciousness, even though it's a, a, a slightly slightly differently emphasized, because he says, well, they're not the poor are just poor, but some of the poor can feel a certain indignation that they want to work, and it's structurally and systematically made impossible for them to work. Mm-hmm. So they, they, are, they want to invest their own labor force to gain uh, um, subsistence, but, but the, the, the way uh, society is organized makes it impossible. And this generates what, what Hegel calls the rabble. And the rebel is defined by an indignation against society, right? So it's a purely negative attitude. This is what I'm trying to say. Mm. And a purely negative attitude um, can very easily, and there was um, there was a Stefan Essel's book, right, um, um, on indignation, which sold, I think, I don't know, a, a lot of million copies um, um, after it was released. It's a kind of pamphlet, right? I mean, be uh, feel indignation. Whenever you see something unjust in the world, and the, the 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 from a Marxist from from the perspective of Marxism, well bourgeois society always gives you that kind of let's say incentives and motivation to feel indignation. But indignation, and this is I think crucial, is a purely negative relation, a relation of rejection, a re- relation of um um uh, that 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 basically. Um, um, spring from identifying a contradiction, namely the contradiction that bourgeois society always speaks about justice and you want you, I don't know, from 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 um from dishwasher to millionaire or whatever, right? So, um, yeah, the, kinds of these kinds of kinds of kinds of um, 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 uh, tropes, yet at the very same time, it makes it impossible for um, um, for everyone to realize that, right? So it generates incentives, you should become rich, you should have lead a good life and so forth, but it structurally and systematically makes it impossible. What to derive from that, um, I think, and this is, I think this is a, a, a kind of crucial insight is that a purely negative rejection, a purely negative and critical um, um, indication of all the injustices and Everything that goes wrong in civil society is not enough, right? I'm not saying one needs a, um, a secondary proposal, but one needs what Marx and Engels, this is why we talked about the Communist Manifesto, described in terms of communism, namely, type of idea that is different from the ideas of the dominant classes, the dominant mm-hmm. ideas, simply because otherwise one simply has the dominant ideas and the rejection of the dominant ideas that themselves. Um, don't make an appeal or are not creative of other forms of ideas. What what does that mean to have another kind of idea? I think, looking at the history of Marxism, or even of Marx, Mm -hmm. it means that on some level communism, um, that, that this other type of idea one could even say it's an ideology, right, that springs from there. So, um, 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 an immense patri ideology, so a logic um, of, of, a different logic of the idea, um, 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 was generated by, in 1871, the Paris Commune, we refer to that um, yeah, um, um, yeah. briefly at one point, right? Because at that point, Marx famously says, that is the political form at least this at last discovered, right? So so it is the finally found political form. Political form for what? For organizing um, the working class, for organizing the proletariat, for organizing the excluded, I'm, I'm using for now these, these terms in a synonymous way, in a way that is fundamentally different from the way in which bourgeois society, bourgeois liberal society, mm-hmm. organizes them because they're self-organized, right? They're self-organized and they're not forming a state, but they're forming a different... They they, they rely on different organizational principles and they, on on, 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 on some level, um, determine the very ways in which they're organized and in, 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 in which they, let's say, um, uh, want to relate to one another and this is kind of i think um, crucial even today because I, I yesterday i reread that right now and i think i'm not sure how 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 precise these these numbers are but because they're already i think 2 years old but that 10% of the global population own 86% of global wealth right mm. of global property so we have and that is clearly clearly Let's say what 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 one today refers to as the super rich. Then you have, on the other hand side, 50% of the so so they they are in classical terms the uh, the owners of the means of production. For example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, all the um, Tim Cooks are. As um, 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 Trump would have said, Tim Apple, right? All the all the Tim Cooks and uh, Jeff Bezos' and Elon Musk's of the world, right? There are not that many, obviously, right? This is why one knows their proper names. Um, um, The new star team or whatever. The the the. (laughs) it's It's a bit like Dagobert Dagobert Duck, and right? I mean, McMoney Sack.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big things, fat cat, right? basically. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, in their in their competition, right? Like the super rich and the super rich, and who's gonna be traveling to the moon the first, right? In these other Oh yeah,
0: that's things. it's completely absurd. Who's exactly. Gonna, yeah, that was it's like a- Disney. Yeah, it's like that Disney, yeah. Disney for rich people, basically. Exactly. <laughs> super rich, at least. Yeah, totally. Exactly. So,
1: so we have 10% owning 86%. So 14% of global global property is left, right? Then you have 50% owning pretty much nothing. And hence, and, and I think this is now cru- the crucial part. So we have 10% super rich, 50%, classically, um, one could say, um a proletariat um, um um and that leaves 40 percent of the population which is something like a let's say almost a global middle class right and now the the question is um what's and they own the 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 last 14 percent right of, of of global property and now the entire question is how does i think it's a crucial question today um how does this Kind of 40% middle class with their 14% um, uh, property ownership relates to the two other classes. There is certainly a clear aspiration to rather, and that is the problem I think on some level, to rather become part of the super rich, right, right investments and all these kinds of things, than to associate themselves and um, to form a solidarity bond with the 50% uh, who own nothing. Right, yeah. so there is a temptation to to on some level reproduce the given 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 structures, and I think this is of huge importance because um, they're forty percent of the global population, right? Um, so it is absolutely crucial how how they're let's say politically and uh, culturally positioning themselves. Yeah, um, but but the crucial point that one can see here, and I think that is absolutely important. That we have that we are actually and strangely dealing with two types of exclusion ultimately. We're dealing with the 50% who have nothing, right? And and, and then we have the segmented areas um, um, or, or, or layers of, of, of exclusion. The super poor, the even more, more poor, right, the refugees, the well-off refugees, the integrated refugees, the exploited working class, uh, the well-off working. Uh, you, you get the point, right? But yeah. on the other hand side, we have an inner exclusion because the super rich, well, they don't pay taxes. Um, The the legal system doesn't seem to apply to them. So Mm -hmm. they're excluded from everything in another way, right? I mean, this is why people are talking um, about um, finance aristocracy or a global oligarchy, right? So they are, they're on some level the ruling class, obviously their, their ideas are the dominant ideas, because we're, I mean, very trivially, we're listening to their songs and watching their movies, right, and and, uh, what do we use? Well, we use Apple streaming services and Netflix and whatever, right, and uh, then order stuff from Amazon or or something like that, right, so that, that is absolutely, absolutely crucial, but nevertheless what I'm trying to say, they are also and differently excluded from everything, um, that applies to the middle class, right? So, so, so we have two extremities uh, or two extreme forms of exclusion. One of the super rich, um, who just like exclude themselves because they simply can, right? They don't work because they don't have to. They do yeah. whatever they fly to the moon simply because they can. We can. Right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, right? I mean, and, and hence they, yeah. they they don't they don't care. Amazon doesn't care about workers, right? In their right in their warehouses, obviously not. Um, and this is not a moral judgment; it's a structural judgment or a structural description. I think that's important. And on the other mm. hand side, we have the the excluded in the poor realm, and hence, forty percent of the global global population is torn between do, those two realms of exclusion. Mm. Um, um, and and this is this is, I think, a politically demanding situation, which on some level, and this is this is why I I. I, I Get there from from talking about the 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 Paris Commune, which demands to raise or at least from Marx's and Engels's perspective, again the question of what could it mean to conceive of an organization that generates a type of solidarity between fifty percent of the population and forty percent of the population, right? Global population, fifty percent who have nothing, who are the excluded, and the forty percent who form. Um, the middle class. This is a demanding question for which, I mean, I, if I n- knew the answer, I'd immediately tell you and everyone else. But, um, but I think this is where we're where we at. And this is not totally foreign to the history of Marxism, because the main question and issue of, and one of the main problems um, from the history of Marxism is how to organize, how to organize something that we might call communism in a way that not does not simply identify communism with um, an, a specific form of state.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was actually, you're starting to pick my mind there because I was going to say that it, we're definitely getting into the realms of discussing how communism emerges and all the ways in which historically, like we said think before as well, of how communism itself is part and parcel of how working out precisely that problem.
1: Yes, I mean on some on, on some level, let's say the, the structural point that 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 Marx will make over and over again to mimic um, 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 Heidegger's late Heidegger's formulation, who at one point. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm condensing and popularizing his, his argument a lot. Everything is so fucked that only a god can save us, right? I mean, that's a, 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 a Spiegel interview from, from very late in his life. I, I think Marx's argument is everything is so screwed in a liberal bourgeois society that only communism can save us, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. well, we'll destroy the environment and the planets and our species, right? Because capitalism doesn't care, right. Right? not even about the ones who endorse it and follow it. I mean, that's 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 kind of kind of um, the catch. Now, so that is, I think, the assumption. And from that assumption, Marx view an organizational solution cropping up, emerging, occurring in 1871 in the Paris Commune. Now, the problem, but it came with a specific problem. The specific problem it came with, it was crushed after. Not even after hundred days, so it lasted, I think, from from um, mid mid March um, to like ninety nine days or something like that later um, um, in in the very same year, and it was crossed by the by the by the let's say dominant class at that time, and um, and and um, that's generated the problem, a, a further problem one could say. Uh, namely the problem, um, um, how can one generate an organization that is the organization, that is an organization of equals, right, of people of equality on a basic level, um, that at the same time is able to last even against um, 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 external enemies, right, even against people who have no interest whatsoever that this kind of Kind of organization exists simply because it's not in their own interest, because it, it could mean that they lose their privileges. So, what does one do with that kind of kind of kind of kind of situation? And this leads um, to um, well, Lenin and, and um, um, uh, starting to experiments and starting to think um, about um, um, creating something like a revolutionary, the a revolutionary party which then was supposed to solve the very problem brought into the world by the Paris Commune when for the first time it experimented with another form of organization, right? So Paris Mm -hmm. Commune failed, um, 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 and it, it clearly failed because it was smashed, right? And so Lenin conceived of, and I'm abbreviating a lot of details and I'm leaving out a lot of details here, but nevertheless, and Lenin conceived of a form of, of 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 organization, which was able to not simply be locally implemented, but be let's say exported and 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 um, um, be I- installed in many different places, right? So you don't get the Moscow commune with with or the Saint Petersburg uh, commune with Lenin, but you get get um, instances of um, the revolutionary, first social democratic, then later the communist uh, or Bolshevik party. Um, um, um all over russia right i mean so 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 yeah. because that was something that the paris commune was not able to do it was just in paris and it was not in marseille and it was not in nice wherever right so you, one could not could not extend or export it but but so lenin lenin had a clear kind of task in mind how to generate a type of organization that is able to last and can be let's say reproduced in different places with the same very same act, um uh, effectiveness and hence he, he came up with a type of militarized on some level, militant um, 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 organizational format that raised the one um, and crucial question. And the one and crucial question is, how can we generate an organizational format that can be sustainable and that is uh, on some level can be considered to be victorious, right? Not temporarily, but long term. Mm. And and at that moment, the organizational question and the question of um, 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 gaining power in a country and uh, more um, um, uh, were kind of uh, conceptually connected and fused, right? So what does it mean to implement a a different type of organization that can actually be victorious? And victory, I think, for for someone like Lenin doesn't mean anything, but something like... um, um, um reaching a point in history which can be considered irreversible, right? Which which mm. changes really changes everything afterwards. Um, and 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 Lenin Lenin from one point on um um um, um 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 namely from one point on his theory of imperialism um, um which 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 basically is somewhat similar to what I, what I just mentioned with the 10%, 40%, 50%, because mm-hmm. he, can, he had the idea that, that, that eco- the economic development of capitalism necessarily concentrates, organizationally concentrates um, 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 capital. That means in the end, we get one supermarket chain. In the end, we get maximally, I don't know, 100 rich, super rich people, and we get one Amazon something
0: like that yeah yeah it was uh um in the show futurama which is a telly tv cartoon that was yeah. um, the creator of the simpsons they did planets so planet starbucks planet microsoft and so forth so uh, yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly exactly and 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 but, but what is what is interesting about the organizational format of imperialism well I mean if there is let's say only one Walmart and one only one Starbucks and only one Amazon if you want to change society well if you take Amazon uh, if you take over Amazon and Starbucks and Walmart you have a supermarket a coffee chain and a distribution infrastructure and you just recode it right or you recode it in such a way that it no longer functions as it did previously. So mm-hmm. so you detect, let's say, points of the concentration of power and points of the concentration of capital. And at that moment that are infrastructurally relevant and at that moment, so I mean, if there is only one bank, if you take over that bank, you're in a position of power, right? I mean, this is the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and at that moment, um, 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 I think, conceptual moment, um, um, uh, the idea was generated that one can effectively take over power, recode it, and Lenin, and this is what happened in 1917 on some level, right? I mean, state was taken over. And the, the hope was that one can recode the entire state machinery in such a way that the um, that the domination of one class over another that is the basic definition of the state in marx and engels can be used in such a way that one ends the nation by the state and abolishes or suspends the state this 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 idea that there can be a withering away of, uh, of the state clearly did not work, even though the revolution was victorious, right? Even though the taking of power was victorious. So, so Lenin and the, the Communist Party, previously called Social Democratic Party of Russia, they took over power. But the one thing that didn't work out was precisely what had to work out for this organizational format to be truly victorious, namely, to, 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 to undo all structures of domination. Um, um, Implemented in the state, because the state is the um, domination of one class over another right, so one was kind of stuck in the withering away of the state in a very paradoxical way. Um, And that was a new problem, because let's say the new organizational format that was the revolutionary party proved effective enough um, to solve the problem of the Paris commune, namely to be how to be victorious and how to. Maintain power long term. Now the new problem was generated, how to not simply replace previous bourgeois power with another type of bourgeois power. Yeah. (laughs) Um, um, Well, I mean, obviously it was very different from previous bourgeois aristocratic power, that is totally clear, but at the same time, it was still the domination of one class over the other, right? Which kind of um, 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 uh, posed a fundamental problem vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis the very idea that one, one, one ch- that that the other idea of organizing that is not bourgeois is an idea that does not rely on the domination of one class over the other. Whose instrument? I'm saying that again is the state. That is Marx and Engels' assumption, right? So, what does it mean? To conceive of a free association of people in a different way, in an organizational format. Obviously, it's not like a hippie um, gathering, right? <laughs> yeah. But 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 in such a way that, um, let's say, the state is not used as an instrument for the reappropriation of um, collective property. But but that one, I think, we touched upon that like two or three weeks ago. Um, that one can conceive of a different type of collective appropriation of collective products and collective energy and collective intelligence and collective and all these kinds of collectives. Yeah. So how do we collectivize? I think that is, that is a crucial question without the state. And how does the actual withering away of the state, how, how can we conceive of that? And this led um, in the Cultural Revolution to the idea so the problem that in Russia, we got stuck with the with, within the process of the withering away of the state, which then was forgotten and simply recoded such that we already had something like a functioning, a functioning state socialism under Stalin, right? With all the, let's say, terroristic and uh, brutal elements of, of state bureaucracy and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. But that is a reification, one could say, of the withering away of the state, right? It acts as if, I mean, everyone acts as if, um, this is already what one was aiming for, right? But it wasn't because it was still state power. This is what I'm trying to say. Now, what happened in the Cultural Revolution was an attempt, on some level, to solve that problem. Um, I think uh, simply because, according to, um, I mean, there's uh, one one famous famous claim from Mao. Um, he raised the question, "Where's the bourgeoisie?" and answered, "Well, the bourgeoisie is in the Communist Party." What does that mean? That even in 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 China, the the, the Communist Party. Uh, already took over um, in the 60s, and, and, and then, then there was an identification that um, 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 the Communist Party, as the party running the state, reproduces the very types of, let's say, society-defining structures of domination that were spe- specific uh, for bourgeois society, but were supposed to be overcome, yet at the same time they reproduced it within the dominating party the dominating communist parties so you had a newly emerging bourgeoisie a communist bourgeoisie as it were right the socialist yeah. bourgeoisie and that is that is truly truly obviously a problem because then you can act as if you actually overcome all the injustices and inequalities and 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 so forth and all the disasters right that are generated by by bourgeois society but you're actually um um, um uh, reproducing them and this led to the cultural revolution the cultural revolution um um uh, was a um a, 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 a very um um a massive failure on the number on a number of levels but attempted to let's say um deal with this strange kind of let's say regress that was historically experienced um, by the bourgeoisie resurging in the communist party or by generating a new type of left-wing or, or communist bourgeoisie. So the idea was revolution is not simply the taking over of power, but one needs even, and then then the state will wither away. No, because the state on some level reproduces the very thing one wants to get away from when, when one um, uh, took its power. So one has to re in state, re-inscribe the revolution into it, and this was supposed to be um, supposed to revitalize the very project that, on some level, was begun um, with Marx identifying the Paris Commune as the finally found political form. This is why it even leads to what 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 in the history of um, um, uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution is called the Shanghai Commune, uh, which is a very important, let's say, historical landmark. Um, Yet, at the same time, it clearly failed, right? So it was not able to solve that very, very, very problem. Again, what is that problem? That Marxism in the Communist Manifesto, as we talked about it, necessitates a way of um, undoing, of withering away of the state as political form, right? And and thus far, it proved impossible in doing so, and it led to this what we at the beginning of today um, called this contradictory entity, namely communist states, right? I mean, which is a contradiction in adjecta, right? A, 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 yeah. A contradiction in, in the term, because this is precisely um what, what it should not be.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's it's sort of it's what we sort of talked about in relation to um bourgeois socialism and how ultimately you just end up back in the regression back into you know everybody's just going to be going back into that bourgeoisie lifestyle it's still that problem of the how is everybody viewing things still through that bourgeois way and even when you try to get rid of it it still sort of returns back into it in some form so like what you said we end up with a bourgeoisie version of communism and that's not what we want so i was thinking to myself like, I'm not going to go too too nuts on this idea, but bear with me on it. <laughs> would, would an idea for how, let's say, basically, you could organize things in such a way, would it be like a form of a, let's say, Amish <laughs> let's say <laughs> not not like trying to remove technology and things like that but you know like a little community that would be together that's not really focused on the bourgeois lifestyle and so forth like that because i think that key, keys the key think problem that comes up again as it likes to do is can we have Communism without having the bourgeois element on, and it's like what we said before, it's like mm-hmm. the need the Roman, you know, it's like the whole Roman Empire argument that we went into. You need certain aspects of bourgeois society. <laughs> and how much yes. yeah. how much exactly do you need is also sort of like a problem within the history of Marx as well.
1: On some level, and this, I mean, it's a it's a very tricky question because um, on, on 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 one level. It leads to the discussion of um, of um, the theory of historical stages in Marxism. I think uh, because, uh, well, I mean, we already talked about that, right? We have feudal stage, yeah. and Then we had a bourgeois stage, right, of historical development, and in one in one rendering, um, um, and then 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 Lenin introduced the imperialist state, right? So stage, right, um, stage, and. Um, and the, the temptation was always to identify one's own age with the last stage of capitalism right it's always the temptation mm. it's always the last stage and then there then and then there is always always a next last stage right? network capitalism and platform capitalism and whatever we want to call it and by, I mean everything's is getting more fluidified right as we as we said i think in the in the, in the first of our conversation yeah now now the now i think there is a temptation on the one hand, side there is a temptation, uh, there is a um, temptation to basically move from what is established as a global structure that is capitalism, right? That was what globalization is, mm-hmm. into local communities. But I think, um, and I mean that that would be my my let's say um, conceptual and political conviction that one needs a solution on a global scale. Mm. because if if one simply refrains from endorsing from from engaging with the question um, of how to reorganize things on the global scale, there is a temptation of not not of not simply trying to isolate oneself and so forth as long as it works great I mean of course but usually it doesn't right simply because um, there 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 are no, um, the, the 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 dream that there are still interstices of the global um, um, system in which one can organize, organize a niche where it effectively works—they are disappearing. If if they still exist, right? So on some level, one one can one 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 one. I think one can properly regress, but one has to address. I mean, think about the climate climate problem produced by capitalism yeah. by, by what. It is a capital problem. It's not, I mean, obviously. Um, if we w- hadn't produced the way in which we produced and consumed and so forth, the problem wouldn't have been that kind of problem. How do we confront that? Not on a local level, I think, but on a global level. But what does that mean? I think um, this raises two essential questions. The first question is what's could and this is why it can't be status. That's another way of putting it, right? It can't be status because it needs to be a global kind of solution. What what can on a global scale be a, a different type of organizing the re, the collective reappropriation of um, um, of of human capacity of the products of human capacity? How can one organize reorganize? organized differently in a new form on a global level um, um, and collectively. Because no state itself will be able to solve the climate problem, right? But, mm-hmm. but then the climate problem shouldn't lead us to simply talk about the climate problem, but the climate problem should lead us, I think, to talk about on what way. And this is why, recall, when we talked about what communism is, we said it's internationalism, right? You yeah. said it's internationalism. And it, this is what I'm emphasizing right now. So I'm saying one needs an international, um, an, an internationalist solution. Why? Because the proletariat all the excluded, the 50% that I refer to, they don't have a, a home country properly, right? I mean they're excluded from from their uh, refugees and so forth. So, so they don't have that kind of status. And the question is, in what way can one organize without leaving these fifty percent just behind and outside, right? So that and and th- this means to think from the standpoint of the proletariat. Second, and I think equally important, is that this raises brings back one absolutely crucial um, concept, and that would demand, I think, another <laughs> entire. Entire long conversation, namely mm-hmm. that Marx um, spo- at one point refers to what he calls the polyvalence and polymorphous worker, right? So that was the idea. We need a type of worker, a, w- a type of work, a type of activity, a type of organizing collectively that is polymorphous. Um, that is not simply that 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 overcomes, let's say, divisions of labor, right? I'm I'm just a qualified academic, and I never talk to the baker, I never talked to people working in the factory, and I certainly never talked to the unemployed somewhere in Africa whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the, the, these uh, divisions are so manifest and are so um, 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 hard and um, um, uh, constantly reproduced that there is no overcoming of it. The polymorphous or polyvalent uh, worker idea means that there is, let's say, a kind of um, um, collective, let me, Let me. maybe that's that's one way of putting it, a kind of collective school. Right, where mm. and this is what I think was was a number of times. Um, um, so Lenin at one point called um, the entire uh, society a factory, but later he at one point also called the entire society a school, where workers learn from sc- students, where students learn from soldiers, where peasants learn from workers, where workers learn from peasants, and you see, right? I mean, so so a collective yeah. way of. That doesn't mean that we all have to go fishing and then reading and then into the factory. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not romanticizing that. But this is why I think the, the school as a or that type of organization as a school for what a polyvalent type of a polymorphous type of collective activity could look like needs to be a part of the conversation of what it means to really be an internationalist or to really think internationally yeah. the problems we're facing are international problems that are non-reducible to simply one state. It might be the most imperial state ever um, um, or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really hinges upon, goes into those points as well about how do what that whole role of challenge and also Um, bourgeois education and how you know everybody's going to be educated in a specific way towards Mm. just specifically work you could argue for to therefore make it more polymorphous as you'd say looking at various different things out with just saying that education is just the sake for a work because when one of Marx and Engels obviously fantastic points that I adore out of the manifesto comes out of that point of saying there's more than just work for education is more than just work basically exactly yeah, yeah. so yeah let's let's um I think next time we might build upon that a little bit but also next time I think it's a good idea if we get stuck into um well let's move the manifesto into discussion of um contemporary society and the relevance of it would be a good idea okay wonderful yeah. thank you so much andrew thank you too <laughs> so as we like to do after every interview give a nice brief recap of the main points that we went over and discussed so so quite a number of little points to go through then So, class consciousness, in a traditional Marxist sense, does not work. Why is this the case? This is because we can have knowledge of a situation, but simply having knowledge does not mean that people will act. We need a different way to think than the ideas of the dominant class, which is the bourgeoisie. This struggle of trying to think of a different way is representative of the history of Marxism, and communism gives us a different way of thinking. Marx identified the Paris Commune as one way of organizing in a non-bourgeois way. The Paris Commune was a failure as it was squashed after a 100 days. Lenin also tackled and sought to resolve this problem of organizing in a non-bourgeois way that is sustainable. To undo the structure's of domination by the state, domination of one class over the other. This was a failure in Russia. It was was stuck in the process of the withering away of the state. And we have that as example of Stalin's continual purges that happened. For the Chinese Cultural Revolution, Mao made the bourgeois part of the Communist Party itself, and this allowed for a form of bourgeois communism. Frank argues that we need an international approach and one that is not local. Such as comparable to the action on climate change is not simply resolved by one specific country. Communism is an internationalist approach. So I hope you find that interview with Frank and myself really interesting. Meanwhile, feel free to drop me an email at my address at dissectingphilosophy@gmail.com. Tip me a coffee coffee.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy, ko-fi.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy. Also, feel free to check out the Patreon where the discussion of Zizek Pandemic 2 Chronicles of Time Lost going on over there and and it can be found on Twitter at Iamarobberman. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.